Recorded live on both sides of the Continental Divide, it is Transformation Thursday. My name is Natalie Walker, and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. All right, time for me to be vulnerable with you all. My recent breakup spurred tonight's episode. Any breakup is challenging to navigate. This one was tough for me to work through. The breakup was so hard on me because I was all in with my ex. I thought we were on the same page, working towards the same relationship goals, and I thought this person was the person I was going to grow old with. However, I found out we weren't on the same page, and the pain of what I thought were our shared dreams being taken away from me initially left me feeling rushed, and I really didn't think I would recover from it. However, I took a few days to feel my emotions, be vulnerable with my friends, and even my ex as we've maintained contact through this process. And what I found out was that my new strength inside of me, by facing my fears and being vulnerable, it's my secret weapon. Tonight, we will be speaking with Jessica Smith, whose pen name is Paula Jean Ferry. And she writes about creativity, vulnerability, and leaning into your fears to unlock personal growth. But before we lean into our fears and our vulnerabilities with Jessica Smith, here is a reminder from our general counsel, Francesca Rodriguez, that Transformation Thursdays is copyrighted material. This is Jamie Rodriguez, the general counsel of the Transformation Thursday podcast network, here to remind you that Transformation Thursday is copyrighted material, all rights reserved 2021. You can support Transformation Thursday by leaving the podcast a five-star rating and writing a short review on Apple Podcasts. It's free and helps get Transformation Thursday out to a larger audience. On Twitter and Instagram, Follow us at TransThursPod. On Facebook, you can follow the podcast by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Amy Stevens. My pronouns are still she, her. And I am Natalie Walker. My pronouns are she, her. And we are here with Jessica Smith talking about fear and vulnerability. Those are big, scary things, aren't they? It can be. <laughs> yeah. Jessica, how do you, how do we lean into, I mean, first, welcome to Transformation Thursday. We should probably say that first too, because you're taking time <laughs> out on a Sunday night, but welcome to Transformation Thursday. And then we'll dive into the deep end. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, those are big, scary topics when we start talking about fear and vulnerability, aren't they? They are indeed. They are well, indeed. Yeah, well, before we get too deep, though, well, let's give us a little bit of background. Who's who's Jessica? You do some writing and some other things. So let's let's what's the nickel tour of your life? And and how did you get okay. on to writing and discussing these type of topics? So it depends on if you want the long story, or the short story, short story. I've always been a bookworm. I was the kid that was grounded from books in middle school because my parents were concerned and rightly so. <laughs> um, and I, I took this, you know, long side path, but my senior year of college, um, I wrote a senior research paper instead of doing an internship. My professors were super supportive, said, this is great. There's really nothing like this in the field. You should get this published. Um, so I expanded that into my first book and my little bookworm self just, I've never understood adrenaline junkies until I hit publish. And I'm like, oh, I get it. This is my life now. <laughs> I am now forever going to be publishing books because it was such a rush. Um, so I am primarily an author who, <laughs> excuse me, who also uh, works in the creativity field, helping other people to write and share their stories as well. So what was that first paper on then that you were writing? My first paper initially started out as Tourette syndrome and how it affects communication. Um, when I expanded that, it became a self-help personal development type book about um, awkwardness and how to utilize that as a tool to your benefit. Mm, so it's like that meme, I'm going to seduce you with my awkward self. Right. Except for with my case, it actually works. <laughs> The seducing or the awkwardness? <laughs> Both, duh. Both. <laughs> Hair flip. Yeah, so what's the name of that first book and, you know, and how could people find it? Because you don't actually publish under Jessica Smith, so. Right, because Jessica Smith is just, there's no chance that that's going to be visible online because there's millions of us. Um, 
so I publish under a pen name. The pen name is Paula Jean Ferry. Um, Jean, like the denim, fairies, F-E-R-R-I. It's from an Italian ancestor of mine. But that first book is called Awkwardly Strong. Got you. Um, how would, you know, yeah, and how did the, you know, you said you were in school, you're putting together this thesis idea or maybe a capstone. Is that the right terminology I'm looking for there? Sure. <laughs> sure, why not? Yeah, well, let's roll with it, right? Because I'm right. working on a thesis now because I'm an idiot, but oh well. Uh, <laughs> At least you're working on one. I don't even have one. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. But I could have got away with a simple project or like presentation. No, I gotta write a I gotta write a thesis. But hey, so how do you how do you start writing about this awkwardness? How do you and how does this play in with your story with Tourette syndrome that you just mentioned? Um so my senior year of college is actually when I was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome. I'd been making noises for years. I think it took about seven years to finally get a diagnosis. Um, and so it, it, Tourette syndrome also statistically does have some comorbidities, things that go hand in hand. If you're diagnosed with one chances increase that you're going to be diagnosed with another, I do have some OCD. So I get a little obsessive and I'm like, Tourette syndrome, let's find out all of the things. And it was convenient because I'd missed the deadline for an internship. So I'm like, great research paper, all the research. And I just did this like deep dive study into all things Tourette syndrome. It's, it's history, all of the different ways that it's viewed. Um, and again, the point of the paper was how it affects communication. And I found such cool things. I mean, it, it's funny because it does lead into vulnerability. Like, I feel like we've kind of it sounds like we've gotten off topic, but I promise that they're related. <laughs> oh, I believe um, it. Yeah, but just because we introduced us, you know, it's a vulnerability, but um, people do feel vulnerable when they're awkward because what happens is we live in a society and there's these cultural expectations. We learn these rules as we grow. We don't necessarily talk about them, but we know that they're there. The ones that we do talk about turn into jokes, like never ask a woman if she's pregnant or her age. You know, those are unspoken rules that everyone knows. And so they've become jokes type of a thing, but there's so much more to that. And it varies from even family to family. Each family has their own individual culture. Anyways, we have all these unspoken rules of what we're supposed to do, who we should be, how we should act. Um, with awkwardness, something happens, whether it be me screaming in the middle of a business meeting or what have you, uh, because I do that. I make noises all the time and it creates a lot of awkward moments. And awkwardness essentially is periods where we don't know those unspoken cultural rules. And so we kind of look around like, oh my gosh. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Who knows the rule? How do I figure it out before I look like an idiot? Because no one wants to look like an idiot. And that's kind of how we keep our, our uh, facade, our self centered and sane is, is by following these unspoken rules. But if there is no rule, um, which essentially is what happens with Tourette syndrome, like no one really knows what those rules are. So I get to be the one to create those rules and I get to create the culture around my Tourette syndrome. I can choose to talk about it and educate people. I can choose to make it into a joke, which I do fairly often. I can choose to do nothing and let everyone else just look around confused because sometimes I'm cruel like that. <laughs> um, well, but it helps guide. me to understand people. So no, no, that's that's perfect. And I have a question here for you because here's here's what I'm visually visualizing right now is I I'm seeing Jessica sitting in front of a, you know the diet the DSM five like just thumbing through and trying to figure out everything about Tourette's everything the comorbidities and this is my mental health geek side coming out and everything about OCD. So are there different forms of Tourette's and are there different yes. forms? And I know there are different forms of OCD. So do you understand like how, what forms you have and how these come out? So that way you can build that culture around it. Um, so with Tourette's I've only, if you've met one person with Tourette's, you've met one person with Tourette's like every individual person is so very different from everyone else that there's really no general consensus within the medical field. Um, medically, like people will say, oh, it's a psychological issue. You were probably abused as a child or sexually abused. Um, there are some people who say, yeah, I've seen it disappear with really strict diets and exercise. There are some people who say, yeah, it's on the autism spectrum because of these comorbidities. No one really knows. 
to be honest. Like it's not a new thing, but there's still so little known about it because everybody is so different and manifests so differently. The closest that they have to different forms. First of all, let me go over the what the DSMV does diagnosis Tourette syndrome um, as of when I was diagnosed. I think it might have changed a little since then. Uh, but there has to be a vocal tick, a vocalization of some form, a physical tick of some form, uh, onset before age 18, and there's no real rhyme, reason, or pattern as to when they manifest. So with that, um, they're mostly the different forms focus on the different types of ticks, the vocal. Um, so you have coprelia, which is when you say the, the bad words, the swear words that the media, the social media, not social media, but like media in general will that's take the it. That's paper for of. everybody. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. kind of pronounce on that one. Yeah. That's, that's the one they get because it's the one that gets the biggest result um, and, and can quite frankly be the most traumatic. I know a girl in the South um, who got beaten up every day of high school because one of her ticks that she could not control was the n-word in the south <laughs> she got beaten up a lot it, it's yeah. you know people make fun of it like it's a swearing thing but it, it's really just any inappropriate word and you can't stop it um there's a physical mirror to that that is uh capraxia which is when you're doing offensive gestures so you're constantly say for example you're constantly flipping people off and you cannot stop it um Yep, just like that. <laughs> I don't know if this is video recorded or not, but we will use that part. Okay. Um, there is also a form called echolalia, which is actually something that I have. I do manifest in this form where I repeat sounds and noises that I hear periodically. So there was one job where I was sitting next to the time clock. And when someone would punch in, the time clock would go beep, beep, beep. And my Tourette's would perfectly imitate that sound after someone clocked in. Like, it's kind of impressive, this gift of imitation that I have. And I can't control it. <laughs> it's kind of sad. You'd be um, a brilliant comedian if you could. Right? <laughs> um, but there's also, again, a physical mirror to that um, echopraxia where people will imitate movements that people are doing. It looks like people are making fun of other people um so that can also get a pretty bad rap as well like stop doing what i'm doing why are you copying me like <laughs> i'm sorry i can't stop it it's just kind of what happens those are those are the four big types of of tourette syndrome do you think that there is not a lot of research into it because of like a general fear of mental health studies or just a general fear of people kind of like coming forward and talking about things that make them embarrassed and awkward I do think that's part of it um, because statistically, I'm a late bloomer. I actually started making noises at 17 and I was diagnosed at 24. Um, but statistically, most common people will start to manifest between the ages of four and six. And so they just look like disruptive kids. And they're told by teachers, parents, authority figures, stop being so disruptive, stop being such a bad kid. And they internalize those messages of I'm disruptive, I'm a problem, I'm a bad kid. Um, and there's a lot of shame that goes around that starting at 17. And when I first started, they actually just kind of sounded like hiccups. Um, so I've got a completely different mindset and I've, I've been able to have that advantage, but uh, it allows me to see Tourette syndrome kind of more for what it is rather than the lens that has been projected by authority figures. Yeah. Well, and then when we start talking about mental health issues, Tourette's, OCD, anxiety, depression, whatever this is, you know, whatever that is, mental health-wise, rather, there's this huge societal fear where, where we've been encouraged not to talk about these things. So now, how do we lean into that to be vulnerable and to speak about these things openly and honestly? And it does require a lot of inward reflection. I mean, as a writer, I've always been a big journaler. Um, so I've spent so many hours writing in a journal. That, that's my therapy. I've talked with therapists. It doesn't quite do the same thing for me as, as journaling. That's my go-to. Mental health is my journals. Um, trying to but, put me out of a job and I haven't even started yet. Say again? Oh, I'm working on my mental health counseling degree. So you're trying to put me out of a job and I haven't even started my career yet. So well, yeah, no, different things work for cool. different people. I different understand. things work for different people like very not, true not very true 
I, I do recommend therapists because seeing a psychologist was how I was diagnosed in the first place. I had seen several different doctors. No one had any idea what was going on. It wasn't until I saw the psychologist who he himself pulled out the DSMV and went boom, 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 boom. There you are. Diagnosis. I'm like, cool. Thanks. <laughs> so you, you got the diagnosis. Now back to journaling. Okay. Um, back to journaling. Um, being able to understand our role in society and these cultural rules and, and understanding that when something unknown happens, we get to essentially create that rule. We get to create the situation. We get to create what comes next rather than waiting for someone else to tell us this is what comes next. <gasps> Excuse me. So okay. it's like the idea that you can't really control everything, but you can control the way that you react to what is happening. Yeah, absolutely. It was so empowering for me to recognize, oh, you mean I don't just have to wait for people to like glare at me and tell me rude things. I, I can say, I can laugh about it if the timing is good. Like my Tourette's actually have great comedic timing. <laughs> if I was ever to become a comedian, it's because my Tourette's and their timing just works. Um, well, but also maybe bit, that's our problem. We need, you know, we need better timing. I was actually, well, I was just saying, I was just thinking, I was, do I know any comedians with Tourette's? I'm like, I'm sure I've seen one. Oh, <laughs> look up Dan Zarin, my friend Dan Zarin. Um, he's got a comedy skit called My Voices Have Tourette's. He works with someone who has schizophrenia and hears voices. Like, they're great. Dan Zarin. Okay. Um, we'll definitely look um, that up. Also, what was his name? He was on America's Got Talent, um, but he was also a comedian with Tourette's as well. So that would be the one I'm thinking of then. I'm pretty sure I've seen that yeah. one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's probably the most popular one. So you but said in there, oh, back. Oh, no, fair enough. I mean, he's your friend. I would have a bias too. Right. Yeah. And so you, you, you talk about, you know, so, you know, my situation that I mentioned in the intro going through a very difficult breakup mm -hmm. and it sounds like, you know, we have a choice to make. We can let things come to us or we can go and be proactive and so leading into that and doing things is like, you know, you mentioned journaling. For me, it's also reading books on different topics, mental health, vulnerability, you know, even understanding different type of attachment styles and just understanding from a very cerebral point, like helps me like down here in my heart. And I'm actually pointing to my heart. Like there's that physical manifestation of pain in our hearts that helps alleviate that pressure because, you know, do you find when your clients start telling their story, taking charge, what happens to them? I mean, it depends on the type of story that they're trying to tell, but I mean, in general, I mean, if you, any book that you read is going to have a similar format, all stories kind of have this same format where someone sets a goal. They want to try and do something, whether that's stressed upon them unbeknownst to them, or it's something that they are choosing to do statistically you will see that main character try and fail three different times before they finally succeed in a way that they'd never really thought and experience growth that is required to kind of reach that next level um so with that vulnerability like understand that there is going to be some failure and there are going to be people who still are going to tell me that I'm so rude for making these noises at inappropriate times, or they're going to give me stink eye, or they're going to, um, you know, I mean, Tourette's is just one example. There's, there's several things where I can't believe you're doing that. You're always going to have people on the outside telling you that you're wrong, but there's 7 billion people on the planet. You can find other people. You're not alone in any of this. You're going to find I feel like the more that I've just kind of blundered my way through life and done what I wanted to do anyways, because of all of this empowerment that I feel, um, the more, the, the less I see those people who try and hold me back. And the more I find my people who are like, hell yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, you know, and it does take some filtering. It's going to be hard you're gonna have to let go of certain people there's a lot of people who I'm just not friends with anymore because our lives are headed different directions 
but I have found so many more people that I connect with on such a deeper level. And it, even that little aspect of recognizing that I control the people that I have around me. Um, the big thing when I was in college and, and the big realization that I have is I literally can't control my body, but what can I control? It was so empowering to recognize that just because I can't control my own body, there are other aspects that I do have control of. And those are things that I want to utilize and cap on and try and figure out, okay, this is what happened. How do I figure out how to use this as a benefit? And this can work with generally awkward situations. This can work with fear. This can work with tragic stuff that happens in your life. Like that was actually my second and third books. I wrote tragically strong because I've been through a lot of really awful experiences. And so tragically strong is about how I, first of all, heal because you can't really move forward unless you heal from that. I don't want to sit as a victim for the rest of my life in all of these terrible things that could happen that have happened to me. I very easily could. I've lost three out of four siblings. My most recent one was murdered. I've been homeless. I've been sexually abused. I've been emotionally abused. I've, there's a lot. I can't even actually remember all of this. <laughs> I know I've been through a lot more than that. That's just like tip of the iceberg, you know, but once I heal, I can then utilize these things to my advantage because A, I've learned and become a better person as a result. And then I can help other people in similar situations because I can understand at a deeper level because I've been there. Um, same thing with fear. Fear actually has a very real purpose in our lives. Anxiety is not just there to make us miserable and to hold us back. Like fear is there to hold us back and keep us safe and alive. But at the same time, the cool thing about fear is that physically it's the exact same reaction as excitement. You know, you get that adrenaline rush, you get the butterflies in your tummy and it's all in our head, how we determine which way that goes, whether we decide that's fear or whether we say, no, actually I'm really excited about this. If I were to go skydiving for the first time, despite being terrified of heights, I can always say, Hey, I'm terrified of heights. This is really scary. Or I can say, Oh my gosh, I'm doing this big, impressive thing. Look at how awesome this is. It can, it can really go either way. When you're talking about the process of like going through the healing and not describing yourself as a victim, would you say that maybe like a survivor would be more of how you would describe yourself or how would you describe yourself now? Um, and I think I, I definitely hit a stage of being a survivor, but I think there's actually a stage even after that um, where you go from Victor to a survivor where it's still something as a survivor, it's still something that's very real and very much a part of you. But at the same time, yeah, I'm trying to think of the words of how to say this anyways, We'll just jump to the next step. The next stage I think is, is thriving. Like it's, it's something that, yeah, it happens. And yes, it, it caused all of these things. You get to that point of, of overcoming that where you're no longer a victim and you're going to hit that. Yes, I did it. I'm a survivor, but you're still talking about it. And it's still a large like identity factor for you. But I've now reached a stage where I'm no longer defined by the fact that I was homeless. I'm no longer defined by these things. I, I choose to be defined by other things as opposed to these things that have happened to me. I choose to identify and be defined as my choices. And this is what I'm doing. These are the steps I'm taking. And these are the things that I've accomplished. Well, as you sit here, you know, one of the things that I was just amazed with and I you know, message Natalie there for a quick second is you listed off some really big things that have happened to you without batting an eye. And our society says, Shh, and you just owned that. So when we have that fear and shame around owning our emotions, owning our fears, what it for you has been the transformation process or the transformational power being able to talk so freely about these topics. And I think it's because I've hit that stage of thriving. Like as a victim, you know, you get these chains thrown on you, you know, it's not something that you've taken on. It's something that someone has just dropped on you and they're heavy and, and it's a load that you can't carry. But the longer that you have those chains on you, the more you're able to 
you know, you're, you're able to gain that strength when you're trying to do that healing. You're able to make some movement. You're still able to move forward. You might even be able to start running a marathon with those chains on. And that's going to be the survivor stage. I've hit that thriving stage where I just dropped the change. The chains aren't there anymore. Like it's something that has happened. I've, I've healed. It's something that I'm, I've talked about it often enough with other people and seen how my story helps other people. And that's something that it, it takes away that fear and shame for me of, yeah, I, I went through this um, and, and it was really hard, but it's still scary to talk about. But the more that other people have, you know, thanked me for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for, you know, they, they thanked me. And yeah. understanding that this is important, not just for me, but for other people and how I can help other people just by telling my story. That That's essentially what I'm trying to build a business around is helping people to write those stories, whether it's just for them and just for emotional healing or if it's something that they want to then use to help other people and publish, um, which a lot of people in that self-help personal development field have done. Um, I've have one friend um, slash client that I've helped write um, his story. He was in an earthquake in 2010 in Haiti, buried under a three-story building. It took him 28 hours to get him out. Um, and, and he's actually the one that, that helped me understand these three stages of from being a victim to a survivor to a thriver. Um, you know, because the more that he tells his story, the more he's able to help empower other people. And um, his catchphrase is rising from the rubble, you know, life falls to pieces and he helps people to rise from, from their own rubble. Um, and he has kind of that same mentality where he's gotten to that thriving stage where it's no longer hard or difficult. He's talked about it so much and seen how much it helps other people that it then becomes more of a tool that he can utilize to help other people rather than being so associated with it. Yeah. And something you mentioned in there too, I love the imagery of the chains and surviving, but then breaking free of those, especially in a marathon, because I love to run. And that reminds me, I need to get some miles or kilometers in for Natalie this week. <laughs> my, my question here though is, but is this process always linear? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, if you were to look at, if I were to take one in isolated incident um, and talk about, you know, losing three out of my four siblings, um, I, my most recent death of a sibling was December of 2019 um, and he was murdered. And there are still some days that I just can't talk about it. I, I actually had another podcast about grief specifically reach out to me and I, I'm, I'm not able to tell that story there yet. And, and maybe if I had a good day, I could, you know, today I'm, I'm an okay day. This is still a little, it's still a little rough. Like it's almost two years later and it's still, I have my good days. I have my bad days. You know, I'm, I'm not at a point where I can talk about it without batting an eye. Um, I don't know if you can hear in my voice, but I'm, my throat is starting to choke up. <laughs> it's still a hard thing to talk about. Um, but at the same time, I know that as I keep moving forward, like some days are going to be better than others. Some days I'm going to be stronger than others. Some days I need more rest. Some days I just need to sit in bed all day and cry. And that's still okay because that's still just part of that journey. And I'm still going to talk about it because I know that it helps other people who have been in similar situations, but I, I, I definitely not linear <laughs> at all. <laughs> When you talk about going through the journey, is there something that gets you through it as far as any kind of spirituality or any kind of faith that you hold in anything? Oh, lots of things, lots of things. And it, and it does depend on the day as far as which I utilize. I, I tend to just look at everything as a tool. And, you know, if I'm trying to, um, trying to think of like some kind of building analogy, but I'm not necessarily an architect or like in construction, um, but like a hammer can be very useful at, at times, but other times you might need a saw or a screwdriver. Um, you know, so I have this collection of tools. I've already mentioned that journaling is something huge for me. 
that's something that I utilize a lot. Um, understanding what my soul and body might need and doing self-care. Like sometimes I just need to spend an entire day reading a fiction book where I'm just out of this situation. You know, um, reading is an escape for me sometimes. Um, I, I am someone who does believe in God. And so there are times where I'll just need to go and sit in the temple of my faith and, and feel that, that peace that's there. I have so many tools at my disposal and I, and so I just kind of determine, you know what, this is what I want today. And I'm going to, I'm going to do it this way today because every day is going to be different. And we could call that, you know, choosing which tool, you know, living by spirit, living by, you know, your gut, whatever you want to call it. But I think I'm hearing in there is like, how, like knowing which tool that you need to reach for in that day and trusting that that feeling that you have that prompting to go reach for that tool. So how do you decipher those? Practice. (laughs) I think practice is a big part of it because for so long, the only tool that I really thought I had, I mean, at the time I didn't even necessarily see them as tools where there were days, I think I spent an entire week once just journaling because that was all I could really do. Um, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to enter the temple at that point. And so that was like all I really could do, but I noticed that some days it helped more than others and recognizing how that helped. Um, and being open to trying new things is a huge part of that in figuring out what works for you and what doesn't. Um, there was one part point in my life where I was very highly suicidal because I had lost everything, like my entire life crashed down around me. And there was, there was literally nothing left for me to hold on to. And the thing that got me out of that funk was a Japanese anime of all things. (laughs) Like it was just this random episode where a character said, I want to live. And I started bawling. I want to live too. Um, (laughs) You know, you have to be open to trying new things and figuring out what brings you joy if what you're lacking is joy, if um, what you're lacking is perspective, and maybe you want to try doing like a gratitude journal and just listing all of the good things that are happening in your life. You know, the more that you try and experience, the more you can say, yeah, I liked that. Note that for another day versus this is the only thing that I can do. Like, I, I hate limitations like that because there's always options. We just have these kind of blinders on because again of these cultural appropriation not appropriation that's the wrong word these cultural expectations like no this is what you have to do self-care means a bubble bath some people hate bubble baths you don't have to do that I have a question going back to this journey is uh what would you say was the hardest part for you about learning how to do that kind of introspection that's required to come out of fear and be vulnerable with people I find that's the hardest hardest for lots of people. Yeah. The hardest part I think for me was, was figuring it out, was understanding that I have to sit with myself and introspect, um, which I mean, is lucky for me because I am at times an introvert, but like for extroverts, that's going to be the hardest part. Like, um, which I do both. I consider myself an ambivert. Sometimes I just need all the people. Sometimes I just don't want to deal with anyone. Um, and both will recharge my social batteries. So it's going to be different for everyone. But for me personally, I, I think it's been having to sit with the things that make myself uncomfortable. Like, and I think that's why a lot of people work really well with therapists because therapists are going to be able to point out things that we don't necessarily see in ourselves, but we do have to be willing to listen to what the therapist is saying or, or to ask ourselves those hard questions. And I think, you know, in that immediate, like trauma after a big event, like what you've described with everything you've been through with, you know, the loss of your siblings and your life situations, also avoiding stuff that numbs the feelings. And that can be different for individuals. That can be drugs. It could be alcohol. That could be, you know, maybe food and quantities or lack of food and quantities that, you know, are unhealthy. So I think, and that's where the extrovert has, I think a really 
big disadvantage because they're going to go out and do everything that, you know, like surround themselves with, you know, parties, whatever. I mean, those are some big generalizations in there, but I think just being able to find those quiet moments and just feel, and that's the hardest thing to do in those first moments after those, especially capital T traumas. Mm-hmm. And and I actually you, might you, slightly yeah. disagree with you a little bit on that. Okay, no, that's fair. I like that. <laughs> there have been a lot of times where I just wasn't ready to sit with those emotions. And so I would numb myself. I think it's important to do it in a healthy way. Um, I think there was one point in my life where I sped probably a straight 24 hours on Pinterest because I just couldn't do anything else. Like, and that was my numbing. I was too busy looking at what other people were doing. I've already talked about the importance of escapism for me and reading a book. Like, I think that if you're not ready to feel those feelings, like it's okay to take that time. Just understand that you will have to face those at some point in order to move forward, but it can be overwhelming and it can be heavy and you can take a break and numb. It's okay. No. And I like that too. So I I like, (laughs) there's definitely a balancing act. I mean, if you're not ready to deal with that emotion, yeah, definitely fine. But I also like what you said, doing it healthy. Quant- like heavy quantities of drugs and alcohol that can do serious damage to you is not a good problem. idea. Yeah, that is exactly. A <laughs> maybe, maybe a couple beers and a glass of wine. Okay. That's okay. But you know, that's a different situation. So I know Natalie had a follow-up. So back to you, Natalie. Yeah, no, I was going to ask is um with the introspection is, is there like an end game for you as far as kind of figuring out who you are? Or do you feel like it's going to be a lifelong process? Oh, I think everything is a lifelong process. I think the more I learn, the less I know, whether that's about me, whether that's about Tourette syndrome, whether that's about culture and the world in general, you know, there's, there's an infinite number of things that we can learn and figure out. And, um, and each time you think, you know, you experience something that then takes you on a deeper level. Like, I've been talking about awkwardness for years. Um, I think I first started talking about this in like 2010, 2011. Last year, I had a job working at our local elementary school as the librarian. And one of the kids said something and I went, well, that's awkward. And they're like, wait, but don't you like awkward? And I'm like, oh yeah, I do. (laughs) Like, It's a constant process. It's never ending. I just texted a friend this week. I'm like, life is just managing one crisis to the next. And it just does not end. No, for sure. For sure. And well, I it think does eventually, but we're just not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a lot of joy to be found in that. I, again, where I utilize everything that happens to me as a tool. And then sometimes it does take time, you know, but being able to, find opportunities to laugh like people will meet me and they're like wow you're just so naive and so innocent and I'm like haha there's a difference between naive and innocent I do agree that I am fairly innocent because I'm willing to still be vulnerable I'm still willing to trust people I am not naive I've been through some shit I think that is a common misconception that we have with people people who still find joy in life tend to be viewed as very naive and innocent what would you think would be the end like where would people be going with that? Why do you think we associate those two? I think because the more difficult things that we experience, we, a a lot of people will just put up these walls and allow themselves to be jaded and put up a lot of protection and, and won't allow themselves to be vulnerable in future situations. But just because I've had an ex who sexually abused me doesn't mean I'm not gonna have another relationship ever again. It's going to take vulnerability to understand that not every person is the same and that I can meet someone who's not going to do that same thing. Not every situation is exactly the same, but we tend to think that that's, that's how our, we're technically kind of programmed to do like, this was bad. This is something we want to avoid in the future. And that's going to take a lot of work to understand that, you know what, I am okay. I am safe. Like I use a lot of affirmations that remind myself I am allowed to find joy. I'm allowed to find pleasure in my day-to-day life. I'm allowed to give people the benefit of the doubt because not everyone is the same. Um, 
I've started talking with this guy recently. We're not dating yet, you know, but like at the same time, he's treated me already better than any of my exes, you know, and I would have never found so much joy and happiness if I just allowed myself to say, you know what, men are jerks. They're just going to sexually, they're going to lie to me. They're going to hurt me. And I'm fine on my own which yes, that makes me a strong, independent woman. But at the same time, I I allow myself to be vulnerable and change the story. I felt so called out right then. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking, I just had this conversation. I just had this conversation on Friday night with a, with a girlfriend of mine where she's, you know, this said about the same thing. It's like, I've had all these issues that you just rattled off in some of her relationships you know, still pushing forward to be vulnerable, to find that right relationship. That takes a lot of vulnerability and a lot of courage and to work through a lot of fear. And so Mm -hmm. I I really like that in relationships and because we need to be vulnerable and there's a lot of fear because it's like, Ooh, that if I'd say this or I do that, then this person might reject me. But if I don't be vulnerable and tell people what I really think when I'm starting to date them, then I could waste years on a person, right? And I actually, just to kind of like build on this, um, this is actually something that I talked about more in my third book, The Fearfully Strong, because of all of these unhealthy relationships, I had developed a fear of men in general. Um, but what I realized I was doing is I was pushing away the good ones because the good ones were going to respect my boundaries and say, oh, she's not comfortable, I'll back off as opposed to the ones that still pushed forward and tried to push through those walls. And those were the ones that I didn't want. And I'm like, wow, I'm kind of just shooting myself in the foot. What am I doing? And so I had to work to process and overcome this fear of men and learn to trust them. And hey, look, all of a sudden, I have found this amazing man. Yeah. And I think it's important to work through those and try to figure out the amazing people that come into our lives, you know, as Mm -hmm. quick as possible and make sure that, you know, you, you find the right ones and you let the right ones in, but gosh, you're going to go through some stinkers in the process. I mean, that's definitely for sure, isn't it? Well, it's hard to trust when you're afraid. So it is hand in hand. They do. They very much do. Yeah. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. We've been chatting for 40 minutes and usually I'd go a little bit longer, but we got two more segments to record tonight. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a long night for me, not so much for Natalie. So any yeah, it's parting... like the, the afternoon so, here. <laughs> yeah. It's afternoon there. Yeah. It's like eight o'clock here and I got to be to work at six again. So anyway, <laughs> any parting words for us, Jessica, thank you so much. I, I appreciate all your insight with fear, vulnerability, and you really sharing some really tender moments with us here. And thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for, you know, creating that safe space. Like that's definitely part of it is I've been through so much that I can recognize, yes, this is a safe space and I can recognize, no, that isn't. Um, so thank you for, for creating that space where we can talk about these things. Oh, you were fantastic to talk to. Like, it's always interesting to hear other people's perspectives on these things. <laughs> My Great. pleasure. Thank you. Well, all righty, Jessica, we're going to say good night to you. Natalie and I are going to be back in just a few seconds to introduce natalie more formally to the transformation thursday audience we'll be right back in like probably three seconds welcome back to transformation thursday my name is amy stevens and hi natalie hi amy my name is natalie walker my pronouns are she her welcome to transformation thursday your first episode as official introduced co-host it was fun and exciting it, it, it is fun and exciting. And you get to look at me every week. Apologies in advance. Ah, you get to look at me. I'm, you know, just hanging out. It'll be the yeah. same. Yeah, just hanging out. There you go. Yep. So, well, thank you. So I just, I just want to introduce everybody to you formally as a co-host. And I want to thank you personally for agreeing to this. And what do you, I was, you know? I was flattered to be asked. So. Why? Well, we had so much episode, episode 96. I mean. I mean, any two people that can make the War of 1812 sound like fun. I mean, what's not the love? I think they, the War of 1812 sound interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what is wrong with us? I don't know. We keep going back to this. I feel like one of us needs to do us like needs to do like a thesis paper on 1812. 
You got yours. I'll work on mine, I guess. I'm thinking just maybe like maybe a bit in one of our sets. You know, or when we start touring, maybe that'll be like one of our like little skit things we can do together. It's like the War of 1812. Yeah, right. I can be the Canadians. You can be the Americans. We'll just reenact it up on stage. Just the two of us. Yeah, but I can't. (laughs) But I mean, the problem with that is you're you would be on the it's a Canadian. You're on the English side. And I don't want to be lit on fire every night. Fair enough. I guess we could like make a little White House effigy. Although I don't know how many bars we'll be allowed to perform at if we burn the White House down every night. Well, we put a little orange band in there, too. Yeah. I think that might go over better in the uh, less Republican states. <laughs> right. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we, here's a question I probably should have asked you before I, you know, brought you on. But I mean, you know, let's just play this out in real time. I mean, I'm a pretty, well, I have two metal rods in my back, so I'm not as flexible as what I once was. But I mean, what are your... You know, what are, what's your vision ideas for Transformation Thursday? What does Natalie bring into the table? Uh, I, like to, I like to just get to know people. The more you talk to people, the more you break down those walls between people and the differences between us, the more people will understand not only about themselves, but about the world we live in. So bringing in different perspectives, talking to people about their lives, and just learning all I can about the world is what I want. And I want that for everybody. When you're a world traveler, I mean, so how is your, how have your travels, uh, you know, influenced your viewpoints there? Um, I think like, so at some points they've definitely made me, um, a little bit more jaded, but on others, it's also made me a lot more accepting of the differences between people. It's like, everyone is kind of, everyone's kind of the same, right? We're all looking for the same things. We're all looking for comfort. We're all looking for love. We're all just looking to be accepted for who we are. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that app with me about looking for love. I'm going to (laughs) definitely... Write up my little profile tonight. It's the that. only one I use now. <laughs> and we are going to leave that one right there. Yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to log in. I'm like, everybody's in Toronto. I got to go get a COVID test to get across the border. Uh, hey, can I get your address for me? So that way, when I, the government asks me where I'm going to quarantine for two weeks, I can be like, of course, you're 3,000 miles away. So that doesn't help me too much. No, but I uh, I have friends in Toronto. I'll see if I can get their addresses. Yeah, good idea. So I got family in Sault Ste. Marie down there. That's a long ways away from here, though. That's like still like 10, 11 hours from me. I know. We had this talk, and you actually knew more about <laughs> the setup of Eastern Canada than I did. <laughs> yeah, I'm such a little geek when it comes to like maps and like geography, stuff like that. It's just... Yeah. maps and I can actually make a map but like it's been a while since I've looked at one of Canada because I haven't been out east in so long well you know when you get out east here to kink and you know just north of the border here from me we'll you know we'll put you in a barrel and we'll get you across the border yeah I'll go over the the falls right that's how you do it in a barrel yeah that's why you do it in a barrel I mean I maybe... think it's like the the key is to apparently to make yourself like as limp as possible oh, so many jokes so many jokes <laughs> We're just going to leave that one right there too. Yes, we are. <laughs> uh, but it, I'm, I'm, I mean, so this, yeah, we've already wasted four minutes on this. I don't know how this happens, but I mean, it's I, me. I'm I do this to everybody. <laughs> the limpness. No, that not, that's not a problem. Usually that's usually the segues of conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, no, I'm really excited to have you. I mean, we just recorded our first interview together and it felt very natural, very free flowing and you know and we already got the hand signals down and so you know it, it's i'm just looking forward to it. it's gonna be a lot of fun and we keep talking about our tour so yeah we're gonna plan that out i think i think we're gonna find a way to make this dream happen no you, i keep telling everybody i'm like next summer next summer i want to go on tour with this comedian like it's gonna happen so I think I'm, we're gonna, uh, I'm working on it <laughs> i think yeah i think i have i have some ideas and you know, a couple other comics that I would like to loop in with this and, you know, if they're available for some shows. And then also, you know, I think, but I also think there's great opportunity to have different viewpoints, queer comics, bi, gay, trans, asexual, whatever, however you identify under the LGBTQIA plus umbrella. 
you know, well, and even just other cultures, right? Like you also get people of color with all of their different experiences in life. And it's just like, there is a wide array of comedy to be enjoyed in the world. Yeah. And it's nice to create a safe spot where people are not going to be punched down at. And so, yeah. And, and, and that's, and those are the type of environments I know you and I are going to create for people. So I look forward to it. Yeah. I look forward to it as well. So well, let's do this. Let's call let's call this portion of your evening for Transformation Thursday over. So we're going to say goodnight to each other, but then I'm going to be back in a little bit with uh, Francesca Rodriguez, our general counsel. We're, I'm going to talk about some more LGBTQ plus law cases. So what do you think about that? I think that's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Natalie, goodnight. Goodnight. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Amy Stevens. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm Francesca Rodriguez, and my pronouns are she, her. Hey, Francesca, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Ready for another um, legal minute, I guess you could say. I'll try and keep it a little shorter this time, so uh, we won't go 20 minutes. Well, uh, can you keep it under my 10-minute time limit? Well, yeah, on some podcasts, you know, 20, 24 minutes is an episode, but for us, it's a segment. Right. (laughs) It's like a a side detour. Well, what do you got for us this week? So today I want to talk about a case. It's called um, Jane Doe versus Genesis Healthcare. And I'm not really going to get so much into the facts of the case. I'm really going to talk about why this case is called Jane Doe, you know, in in, in the title. And um, so this is an employment case. Um, uh, Jane Doe is a, is a, a trans woman who's um, bringing a discrimination case um, against her employer for uh, discrimination on the base of sex and gender identity and disability. And her former employer is this Genesis Healthcare, which is um, uh, kind of a nursing center. And and, uh, she was a certified nursing assistant. And anyway, she alleges that, uh, you know, the director of nursing falsely accused her of making comments criticized her appearance, kind of said things like, you know, someone looking like you shouldn't be making a big deal of things. So essentially, you know, picking on her for her, um, you know, her her gender identity and her presentation. Um, So that's kind of the underlying basis for the lawsuit. But really what I want to talk about is when a plaintiff or or any party to a lawsuit can proceed um, anonymously in the lawsuit. So in this case, um, we're not going to disclose the name of the uh, uh, of the woman who is the plaintiff. Um, she's referred to as Jane Doe in the case. And if you look at kind of like for as a matter of public policy, generally the courts are open and court cases. People can, you can go to a courthouse and, you know, just walk in and sit in the audience and watch a case. Um, it's generally a public, you know, venue that you can go to. And there's a number of reasons kind of for transparency of the way the legal, the, the courts develop legal cases. There's a uh, kind of a policy of open and transparent proceedings and kind of the notion that citizens have a right to know who's going into the courts and defendants having a right to confront their accusers. Those are all rationales for why we have kind of an open system. And normally um, the plaintiff and the defendant in a case, both of them are named in the case. But there are circumstances where if you have a litigant who's really gonna suffer you know, uh, distress or danger from being identified, the courts will occasionally let them proceed anonymously as a, as a Jane Doe, for example. In order to convince a court to do that, though, you have to have a reasonable fear of severe harm. And then once you raise the issue of some harm, the courts kind of look to this balancing test. And when you hear a court talk about a balancing test, you know it's going to be kind of fact intensive. So there are going to be some factors that favor being anonymous and some factors that disfavor anonymity. Some of the factors that favor being anonymous are if the um, you know if the if the litigant uh, has been maintaining confidentiality confidentiality in the past. So you know thinking in terms of a 
of a trans person who doesn't, you know, is concerned about being outed and 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 especially if you have, you know, a fear that uh, of some kind of harm, the court will look at, you know, has that person been living kind of stealthily or at least not disclosing their trans identity um, to just kind of the general public? That'll be a factor. Um, they're going to look at, you know, what are the bases for why the person's alleging some fear? You know, they might look at their family situation or, you know, previous violence against them. They're going to look at the magnitude of the of kind of the public interest as well in in the public knowing uh, the facts of the case. So if you have a person who really is a public figure already, they're probably they're going to be the courts are going to be less likely to grant that person anonymity. You know, and there's some other factors like kind of the um, uh, the undesirability of the outcome. You know, whether the person seeking to proceed anonymously has some kind of illegitimate ulterior motive, you know, maybe some kind of fraud. So the courts are going to kind of look at all these factors and, and really balance the, the public interest versus the individual's interest. And, you know, the courts for a while have recognized that transgender status um, is a basis to, to grant anonymity to, to plaintiffs. And, and so that's what they did in this case. You know, this plaintiff was seeking to avoid future harm. You know, there are kind of employment issues with why someone might want to be anonymous. And, and in this case, the court, uh, you know, found that, that all of those factors supported uh, the plaintiff proceeding as a Jane Doe. I mean, it's also relevant that in this case, the defense really was not objecting. So that's, you know, that's another issue. It depends kind of who your, your opposing litigants are. Are they going to really object to it? You know, what is their interest in, in kind of the public knowing both sides' names? Um, those weren't present here. And, you know, you might ask, why am I talking about this kind of mundane um, court naming issue? Well, I just want people to know that these, that this is a possibility because sometimes people will be afraid to essentially protect their rights because they're afraid of some ancillary issue like being outed or disclosed. And so people should just know that if you're afraid of disclosing your trans status, but you have a legal case, you need to bring that up with your attorney. Or if you're proceeding pro se, that's something you can address to the court and request that the, you know, the, the, the court refer to you as a Jane or John Doe, as opposed to, uh, you know, according to your name. So like, I want people to be aware of that kind of general concept. Well, you um, mentioned in there a couple of things real quick. And before we, so you mentioned pro se, that's representing yourself. Right. And then also, but in addition to like, you know, this discrimination case that we're talking about against employer, you know, what other type of cases could this apply to? You know, you see things like, you know, every state's a little bit different on how they handle name changes, for example. So I look at, you know, in the state of Maryland, which in, in Virginia, it's really easy. You fill out a form, you file it with the court, um, you really don't have to publish anything. But in Maryland, you have to file an application for a name change, and then you're supposed to publish that in some, you know, newspaper of record. And, you know, but you can get that requirement waived if you go to the court and say, you know, there's good reasons why I don't want to disclose my status to the world. You know, you're afraid of um, some kind of, you know, physical harm or, you know, kind of being outed to people who, who, who wouldn't support you. You can get an exception to those kind of general rules. You know, another thing I think of is, and this is something that I had to do. I, I uh, used to be in the military. So when I left military service, I got a form called a DD-214, which basically says, you know, I, I have an honorable discharge. And a lot of people use those DD-214s when they're seeking future employment. Well, the DD-214 actually doesn't have your gender on it, but it does have the name you were known as when you were, you know, serving in the service. And if you've transitioned since leaving military service, you may want to claim veteran status for some reason. Sometimes you can get a hiring preference or, you know, sometimes it just looks good on, a, on an application, but you might not want to disclose that 
form with your old name. So you can actually petition the military to, um, to, to get a new DD-214 issued with your new name. Um, and it's really not that hard. You have to do a, it's a D, um, DD Form 149, Department of Defense Form 149. And if you uh, Google that form or you go to the National Center for Transgender Equality, a couple other locations, you will find the procedure of, on how to get, how to apply to have your DD-214 revised. So this is not an issue that's specific to legal cases. It's, it's kind of a broad issue, but there are ways in dealing with legal issues that that you can proceed anonymously or get your records changed. And I just think that's important for people to know. No, and I totally agree with you. And I'm fortunate here in New York where I was able to, you know, part of my name change, I had the record sealed. So that was important. And, you know, and you and I, when we were emailing about this case or this situation earlier, you know, we actually have a mutual friend. And I think I'm using that term loosely, you know, that was harassed in her hometown because of the publication requirement in a state where it couldn't be waived. So this does have real consequences and threats to physical health and violence and mental health and everything that goes with it. So that is important for you. If you are, you know, look into the courts, look to, if you're, if you have an attorney, work with an attorney to see what you can do for getting, you know, a Jane Doe situation. If you have to file a lawsuit, changing your name on the DD-214, which shouldn't require a lawyer, if I remember right, right? It doesn't. No, you can you can download the form and just submit it. You don't need a, re- a lawyer to do that. Or yeah, or else checking with the lawyer to see, you know, if the record can be sealed and waiving that publication requirement. Because even New York, there is a publication requirement, but you can get that waived. And, you know, my, my name change records are sealed. So yeah, unfortunate. These publication requirements are kind of based on this somewhat antiquated view that people are changing their names to get out of debt debts. And I think anyone who's ever, who's had a credit card in the past 20 years knows that those bastards will track you down. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's all tied to your social security number and you don't get a new one of those with changing your name. Exactly. So um, uh, anyway, I, it's a short, short um, legal segment today, but I think we covered uh, short talk. <laughs> All right. Well, just because you kept it so short tonight, I won't put the multiplier on afterward. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All righty, Francesca. Thank you very much for stopping by. What another fantastic episode of Transformation Thursday, a fantastic interview with Jessica Smith. We had their introduction to Natalie. And of course, it's always fun to have you on the line here, Francesca. So, well, thanks. Thanks for stopping by and good night. Okay. Good night, Amy.